Welcome to SMC's podcast series, SMC Critical Insights. My name is Julia Malcina. I'm a partner in SMC's litigation group and co-lead of our securities litigation practice. I'm joined by Jed Littleton, who is a partner in our litigation group and co-head of the firm's Supreme Court and appellate practice. Today, we will discuss the upcoming Supreme Court oral argument in SEC v. Cochrane and the potential important implications for SEC enforcement actions that the case may have. Judd, why don't you give our listeners a brief overview of what we will discuss? Thanks, Julia. I'd be happy to. So on November 7th, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in a case called SEC versus Cochrane. The issue before the court is whether the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, often just called the Exchange Act, strips federal district courts of jurisdiction to decide structural constitutional claims that challenge ongoing SEC enforcement actions. So we'll first talk a bit about the background of the SEC versus Cochrane case, and then summarize the key issues and arguments that the Supreme Court will consider, and finally give a little thought to the case's implications. So let's start with some background. Julia, what do we need to know to understand the question presented? Of course, Judd. First, I think we need a little background on federal court's ability to review SEC enforcement actions. The Exchange Act gives the SEC power to initiate enforcement actions before a district court or an administrative proceeding before the commission. If the SEC chooses to file its action before the commission, the commission often will delegate the proceeding to an administrative law judge, or ALJ for short. The ALJ will then oversee discovery, hold a hearing, and issue an initial decision. The party on the losing end of the ALJ's order may appeal that order to the commission. Sometimes the commission affirms the ALJ's order, and other times it remains the decision for one reason or another. So what happens when a party loses before the commission? Spoiler alert, that happens more often than not. But the Exchange Act provides for that, too, by authorizing judicial review. The text of the relevant provision of the Exchange Act, found at 15 U.S.C. Section 78Y, states that, quote, a person aggrieved by a final order of the commission entered pursuant to this chapter may obtain review of the order in the United States Court of Appeals for the circuit in which he resides or has his principal place of business or for the District of Columbia circuit. Section 78Y is a jurisdictional provision in the true sense of that term. Jurisdiction refers to a federal court's ability to hear a type of claim. Federal district courts and courts of appeal are courts of limited jurisdiction. The Constitution gives Congress the exclusive authority to determine the kinds of cases these courts may hear. And Section 78Y does just that for final SEC orders. We see jurisdiction granting provisions like Section 78Y in the judicial review schemes for many federal agencies. Now, Judd, what happens if a party to an SEC enforcement action wants to challenge the action on constitutional grounds before the commission issues its final decision? So that is the question that lies at the heart of this case. Sometimes the target of an SEC enforcement action challenges the proceeding on constitutional grounds, and those grounds may not have much to do with the individual circumstances of their case. 
Such a person might argue, for example, that the ALJ was unconstitutionally appointed or insulated from removal by the president, or that the entire proceeding violates the due process clause of the Constitution. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Section 78Y provides jurisdiction for a party to challenge the commission's final order in a federal court of appeals. And it's undisputed that the party can make these kinds of constitutional arguments to that court of appeals. But SEC enforcement actions can take years to resolve, and they also can impose high financial and personal costs to the person sitting through them. Over the years, parties to some SEC enforcement actions argued that they shouldn't have to wait that long. Midway through the enforcement action, they filed suit in the federal district court and asked the district court to enjoin the enforcement action because of the alleged constitutional problem. These plaintiffs claimed that the federal district court had jurisdiction to hear their suits under Congress's general federal question statute, 28 U.S.C. section 1331 which gives district courts jurisdiction over, quote, all civil actions arising under the Constitution, laws, or treaties of the United States, end quote. So we have two jurisdictional statutes at play. One, Section 78Y of the Exchange Act, gives federal appellate courts jurisdiction to hear appeals from the commission's final orders. The other, Section 1331, gives federal district courts jurisdiction over all civil actions arising under the Constitution. So how do courts decide which statute governs? In Thunder Basin Coal Company versus Reich, the Supreme Court developed a two-part framework to decide whether statutes like Section 78Y implicitly strip federal district courts of federal question jurisdiction. At step one, a court asks whether Congress's intent to preclude district court jurisdiction is fairly discernible in the statutory scheme. If the court finds, as a general matter, that the statutory scheme precludes judicial review, it then proceeds to step two. At that step, it asks whether the claim at issue in the case is the type of claim that Congress meant to exclude from the district court's jurisdiction. So to answer that second question, Thunder Basin tells courts to look at three factors. First, whether the administrative proceeding would foreclose all meaningful judicial review. Second, whether the suit is, quote, wholly collateral to a statute's review provisions. And third, whether the claim is outside the agency's expertise. Now, over the past decade, six federal appellate courts have applied this framework to the SEC's statutory scheme that we're discussing today. Five courts reached the same conclusion. District courts lack jurisdiction over challenges to ongoing SEC proceedings, including structural attacks on their constitutionality, because Congress intended to strip them of jurisdiction in Section 78Y. The en banc Fifth Circuit in this case was the first to rule otherwise. Judd, can you give a bit of background on how the Cochrane case got to the Supreme Court? Of course. So in April 2016, the SEC brought an enforcement action against a CPA named Michelle Cochran, alleging that she had not complied with certain auditing standards found in the Exchange Act. The SEC initiated proceedings against Cochran in an administrative enforcement proceeding before an ALJ. At the end of that proceeding, 
the ALJ found that Cochran had violated federal law, fined her more than $20,000, and banned her from practicing before the SEC for five years. The commission adopted the ALJ's decision, and Cochran objected. Now, while that objection was pending, a Supreme Court decision changed the landscape. In a case called Lucia versus SEC, the court held that SEC ALJs are officers of the United States who, under the Constitution, must be appointed by the president, a court of law, or a department head. Before Lucia, the SEC staff had selected ALJs, so that decision meant that all of those ALJs were unconstitutionally appointed, including the one who had initially heard Cochran's case. So after that decision, the SEC reassigned all adjudications to ALJs whose appointments had, by then, been ratified by the commission and were thus constitutional under the Appointments Clause. So after the new ALJ took over Cochran's case, Cochran didn't wait any longer. She filed this lawsuit in a federal district court in Texas. She asked that court to enjoin the enforcement action against her, arguing, among other things, that statutory restrictions on the president's power to remove ALJs violate the Constitution. The district court dismissed her suit for lack of jurisdiction. It concluded that Section 70Y of the Exchange Act provided the exclusive means for asserting these kinds of constitutional claims before an Article III court. Cochran appealed to the Fifth Circuit, which saved the SEC's enforcement action pending appeal. The Fifth Circuit panel, who heard the merits of her appeal, affirmed the district court in a 2-1 decision. Then the Ombong Fifth Circuit agreed to rehear the appeal and reversed, holding that Section 78Y did not strip district courts of jurisdiction to hear the type of structural constitutional claim Cochran brought here. The SEC then filed a petition for certiorari, which the court granted on May 16th. On November 7th, the court will hear oral argument in both Cochran and Axon Enterprise versus Federal Trade Commission, a case involving a similar challenge to the FTC's judicial review scheme. Judd, how did Cochran frame her arguments in her Supreme Court briefing? So Cochran makes four main arguments. First, she argues that the court doesn't need to go any further than the text of Section 78Y in order to decide the case in her favor. Now, this argument focuses on the fact that Section 78Y speaks to judicial review of SEC final orders, and Cochran isn't challenging a final order. In other words, she says, Section 78Y only strips district courts of jurisdiction to consider challenges to final orders. And in her view, this means her structural constitutional claim falls outside of the scope of Section 78Y. Now, her second argument, Cochran argues that a Supreme Court decision from 2010 called Free Enterprise Fund versus PCAOB controls the outcome of the case. Now, that's a very important case, but I want to put a pin in that argument for now and talk about Free Enterprise Fund a little bit later. For her third argument, Cochran addresses the Thunder Basin factors that Julia talked about earlier. She argues that those factors come out in her favor because, first, challenges to ALJ's insulation from removal by the president are wholly collateral to individual agency orders. Second, her constitutional challenge falls outside the commission's expertise. 
And third, she argues that Section 78Y could preclude all meaningful judicial review of constitutional claims in cases where the SEC drops the case, the party settles with the SEC, or the party prevails in the administrative action. Now, one aside and further note on this argument, Cochran frames these Thunder Basin factors as, quote, atextual and contrary to ordinary rules of statutory interpretation. I think this argument is subtly inviting the court to reconsider this Thunder Basin framework for deciding these kinds of jurisdictional questions. Cochran seems to be advocating for a framework that would essentially employ a one-step approach, one that looks only to the text of the statute to decide the jurisdictional question. And finally, for her fourth argument, Cochran invokes broad separation of powers principles and preservation of individual liberty. She argues that preserving district court jurisdiction over structural constitutional claims is essential to ensuring that administrative agencies conform to the Constitution and that it makes no sense to have ALJs decide in the first instance whether their own structure violates the separation of powers. So, Julia, how did the government respond to all these arguments? Judd, the government responds with several points of its own, some of which it makes for the first time on appeal. As its first argument, the SEC contends that the statutory text supports its position. The SEC invokes what is commonly referred to as the specific versus general canon of statutory interpretation. That canon says that a specific statutory provision controls over a general one. Applying that canon here, the SEC argues that Congress's general grant of jurisdiction to district courts must yield to Section 78Y's more specific grant of jurisdiction as to review of SEC proceedings. And the SEC points to all kinds of detailed provisions in the Exchange Act to further argue that Section 78Y controls all reviews of the SEC's conduct in enforcement proceedings. For its second argument, that SEC contends that the three Thunder Basin factors come out in its favor, as opposed to Cochrane. Specifically, the government argues that, first, its reading of Section 78Y does not preclude meaningful judicial review. Second, Cochrane's constitutional challenge is not a wholly collateral matter to the enforcement proceeding before the Commission. And third, that even if the SEC lacks expertise in interpreting the Constitution, it can still apply its expertise by deciding other issues that may obviate the need to address the constitutional challenge. The SEC adds that the latter is in keeping with the constitutional avoidance canon of statutory interpretation, which says that courts should interpret statutes to avoid constitutional questions. For its third argument, the SEC offers its own way of distinguishing free enterprise funds, which we will discuss shortly. The government also makes two new arguments. It argues that certain provisions of the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA, confirm that Cochrane cannot challenge the SEC's ongoing enforcement action in federal court. Next, the SEC presents a new backstop argument contending that even if the district court has jurisdiction over Cochrane's suit, no cause of action allows her to seek review. Of course, Cochrane countered that the SEC forfeited these arguments because it failed to make them before the Fifth Circuit or the district court. Now, Judd, let's circle back to the Free Enterprise Fund case. What was that case about and why does it matter here? 
Thanks, Julia. So the court decided Free Enterprise Fund in 2010. Now, that case involved an accounting firm that regulators were investigating but had not yet charged. And this accounting firm sued in federal district court, making similar arguments about the constitutionality of the agency's structure to those that Cochran is making here. Section 78Y, which applied in that case as well, is silent on challenging investigations by the SEC. This meant that the accounting firm would have to incur a sanction to eventually get its structural constitutional claim in front of a federal court. The Supreme Court applied the Thunder Basin factors and held that Section 78Y did not prevent the accounting firm from asserting that claim in federal district court. Any other ruling, the court explained, would prevent a meaningful avenue for judicial review. Now here in the Cochran case, both sides claim that Free Enterprise Fund decides the case in their favor. For her part, Cochran reads Free Enterprise Fund to stand for the broader proposition that Section 78Y does not divest district courts of jurisdiction to hear constitutional challenges to an agency's structure. Now, the government claims that Free Enterprise Fund's reasoning is cabined to parties who are the target of an investigation. In its view, Free Enterprise Fund does not allow a party who is already subject to an enforcement action to skip over Section 78Y's judicial review scheme. In other words, Free Enterprise Fund sets up an investigation versus enforcement action dichotomy. So, Julia, when will this case be argued and when do we expect the court to release a decision? So for the easy part of that question, the court will hear oral argument in this case and Axon Enterprise on November 7th. Now as to the harder part, we expect a decision by the end of the court's term in June of next year. Now this is a complicated case that implicates difficult questions about administrative law, federal court's jurisdiction, and separation of powers. It's also a case where we might see a number of separate writings. For those reasons, a decision might come closer to the end of the court's term. Judd, which justices will you keep an eye on during oral arguments? So both Cochran and the SEC lead with the text of Section 78Y. In the words of Justice Kagan, we're all textualists now. So I'm particularly interested in seeing how each justice invokes the principles of statutory interpretation, like plain text or the general specific canon that you mentioned to read Section 78Y's text. And I'll also be paying close attention to Justice Kavanaugh's questions. When he was a D.C. Circuit judge, Justice Kavanaugh wrote a dissenting opinion in Free Enterprise Fund that the Supreme Court's decision in that case ended up following closely when it overturned the D.C. Circuit. Then Judge Kavanaugh also was part of a D.C. Circuit panel that found Section 78Y precluded district court jurisdiction to hear various structural constitutional claims during an ongoing agency enforcement action. So it will be interesting to see what Justice Kavanaugh emphasizes in his questions to the parties. I'll also be keeping an eye on the Chief Justice and Justice Barrett. If there's a split decision on the issue, they may be key to watch. All right. So, Julia, any predictions on how the court will decide this case? So reading the tea leaves is always a fun and dangerous pastime. I'll echo something that you said, Judd, and say that I think which side's textual argument the Supreme Court finds more persuasive 
will go a long way in determining how the court decides the issue. A few more considerations that we haven't discussed yet may also inform the court's decision. First, there may be concerns over what other regulatory schemes a decision here will affect. Many agencies have a jurisdictional provision that is similar to Section 78 line, and justices may be concerned that a decision in favor of Cochrane may open up a number of issues with respect to those statutory schemes as well. Second, how to determine what claim would fall outside of Section 78 line, especially in the absence of statutory language to guide that inquiry, if the court rules for Cochrane, may trouble some justices. Third, the investigation versus enforcement action distinction that you discussed earlier, Judd, is a textual, or at least arguably so. And it would result in parties who have not had claims brought against them being able to bring some claims in federal district court, while not parties who have had some claims brought against them, which might strike some justices as counterintuitive. So there may be concerns about distinguishing free enterprise funds in this manner if the court rules for the SEC. Let's assume the Supreme Court signs with Cochrane. Judd, what are some implications of the ruling? So for one thing, I think a ruling for Cochrane could create a lot more litigation work for the SEC. Under the government's reading of Section 78Y, the commission considers all claims, including constitutional claims, in the first instance. And then only after it issues its final order may the losing party appeal the whole action to a federal appellate court. Now, under Cochrane's reading, a party to an ongoing enforcement action could file a structural constitutional challenge in federal district court while the administrative proceedings are still ongoing. Then a federal appellate court and possibly the Supreme Court would review the district court's decision on that issue. Then, depending how that challenge was decided, another federal appellate court would review the commission's final order. So a party would have an opportunity to present a structural constitutional challenge to the federal courts earlier, and a party could potentially take two appeals, one from the federal district court's decision on the structural constitutional challenge, and another from the final agency order. I also think, this is something that you mentioned, Julia, that a decision in favor of Cochrane could ripple across the administrative state. As we noted earlier, many agencies have judicial review schemes similar to the SEC's. So if Cochrane wins, parties to other agency investigations are likely to argue that they too should be able to attack the constitutionality of an ongoing agency enforcement action in federal court. Now, on the other hand, because multiple federal courts had ruled that Section 78Y strips district courts of jurisdiction to consider claims such as Cochrane's, a ruling in favor of the government here would largely maintain the status quo. We'll just have to wait until the oral argument and the Supreme Court's decision. That's all we have for today. Thank you for joining Judd and me for this installment of SNC's Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Mm-hmm.